This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here. This is the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Nick English, co-founder of Bremont Watches. Nick, welcome. Ariel, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, yeah, good to speak. I remember our very first meeting, Nick. I don't know if you remember where it was. It was a hotel here in Los Angeles, right off of Sunset Boulevard. It was in, um, oh God, what was it called? Not the Sunset. What was that, it, that hotel I, called? I, hotel. I just had a yeah meeting with um, someone. Uh, I don't know why I always forget that. It was the Rockstar Hotel. Anyways. <laughs> it, it, it's quite a cool place, isn't it? It is a cool place. And, you know, you sat me down and you gave me a lot of your time to give me the Bremont pitch. And you told me about you and your brother and the brand, and you already had some great watches and some good people working with it. And I remember to this day that sense where you were you were genuinely excited about this thing and you really, really liked it. And I knew immediately that it, like, it, wasn't, it didn't even really matter what it was you were making. The fact that you were so enthusiastic about it was like, you know, eight tenths of the way there. Do you, do you remember that meeting? I do indeed. I do indeed. I think you turn up with the old rucksack on your back. Um, oh, yes, always. <laughs> and uh, no, no, but I think it's it's like that in life, isn't it? I think um, whatever, especially in the watch industry, you you have to be a passionate about what you're doing. Otherwise, it's uh, be far too much uh, of a battle, really, because there's so many ups and downs and um, it, you definitely need that passion. Now, it's funny you, you mentioned my rucksack. I call the backpack, you know, being here in America. Oh, yeah, of course. But, you know. I've always been a little bit made fun of for the fact that I sort of dress actively. I don't really dress formally. But, you know, I'm into active watches. I wear sport watches. I like being active. And you make watches for those people, for those situations. And you you attract those types of wearers. doesn't matter what walk of life they come from. You're You're a brand for active people. So if anything, you should be saying, cool, this guy's Wearing a backpack, he's our type of people, right? Ariel, I was deeply impressed as you walked in with that rucksack on your back. So um, it's definitely a tick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what have you learned about personal style and presentation being in this? Because I don't know you too well from before this world, but when you're in the luxury industry, you suddenly realize like how damn important presentation is and your 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 you know your personal. Uh, effect on people and things like that. Did you, be, did you, you know, and then of course in LA, you came to LA a lot, which is sort of the epicenter of all that. What did you learn about the image culture from being in the watch industry? Well, I, I think we looked at the watch industry being Switzerland at the time, you know, when Giles and I started the business in 2002. Right. Yeah, we didn't launch our first watch in 2000, until 2007, but it was all about Basel World, wasn't it? And actually the best thing we never did was go to Baselworld before we started the brand because I think you'd have gone there and think, oh my gosh, is there really space for another watch brand? But, um, you know, it was Switzerland. It was very much big, you know, the conglomerate sort of almost uh, these big sort of four or five uh, industry houses with these brands. A lot of the guys were suited. Um, it was very much the Swiss way or, or, or no way, really. And and I think being setting up a brand in the UK, um, 
we just had a slightly different take on things. And Giles and I, we're not Swiss, um, you know, that we've, we've learned a, a huge amount from them. But we, we certainly feel like we had our own sort of slight style about things and we're, we're not necessarily suited and booted the whole time. Trying to make Giles and I look relatively smart is, is, a, is an achievement in itself. But, um, but we're, you know, it's, no, image is important. And I think when you come to, to our factory, our main facility in, in Henley-on-Thames, which is about an hour, west of london you'll see exactly what i mean by that you know it is it is incredibly important especially where watches are being made no you're you're right and i think also you benefited from a certain latent amount of anglophilia that exists around the world where there's people that are interested in english culture that idolize a lot of elements of, of england and style things that you as english people just sort of take for granted at what point did you realize that it was there was something to sort of being a British brand in addition to being sort of a luxury watch brand? Well, I think for, for Giles and I, it's always incredibly important. It was a big differentiator for us. I mean, uh, if anyone pretty much in the industry, when we started, wanted to make a watch, it had to be made in Switzerland, whether you're making it for yourself or you're getting someone else to make it for you. Um, and our flag was very firmly stuck in the ground in the UK. And there is an incredible history of obviously British watchmaking in the UK. You go back a couple hundred years, probably half the clocks and pocket watches and things came from this country and probably half the innovation in any mechanical watch came from the UK. So we, we knew all this, you know, the world sets its time by Greenwich. Um, we failed to industrialize watchmaking as a country and that slipped away and we had a couple of wars to contend with. But we're but there is an incredible engineering base in this country, quite remarkable. You look, you look at aerospace, you look at Formula One, you look at so many of these industries, um, and we're pulling a lot of the people from these industries to work in watches, which is really, really exciting. So um, it was important for us. It was our biggest differentiator. And I think to this day, you, know, you come to Bremont and you'll see we are doing things differently to the Swiss, but we're doing them equally as well, if not, you know, as as if not better in, in certain respects. Well, I'm not, I'm not even just talking about watches. I mean, you could sell anything, but the fact that you are, uh, you know, essentially a British lifestyle brand that makes a particular product, you go to places, you know, like Hong Kong uh, or Singapore, for example, where there's still this, this major interest in uh, uh, English culture and things like that. You may have not realized it at the time, but when you started going over there, did you recognize that in addition to making a nice watch, a British Swiss way or, or otherwise, there was something about the British element? I'm just curious because I see from the side, whereas the appeal of a brand isn't always just their craftsmanship, but there's something about their image and what they suggest about people where they might be accidentally onto something. Because, And I want to get to this topic, but you sort of brought back this idea of, of sort of a British watch brand. It existed in a, in, in a tiny form, really, when you got started. Yeah, do you know, there is a bit of a hangover from when we we're a sort of much more powerful nation. But uh, obviously, a lot of that's disappeared. But, you know, I think there is, you know, especially, you know, we have a, an incredible relationship with the likes of the US, which is is wonderful, you know, as, as countries and, and you know, Australasia and places like that. So there's, there's definitely a, a lovely bond uh, steeped in history. But I think Giles and I are under no illusions where you know, whatever we made, uh, and in this case, for us, it was watches, they had to be up there um, in terms of everything else as well, because you weren't selling to a, a naive, 
user base would buy it, you know, a fan base would buy it based on, you know, where you, where you had them made. It had to, the quality had to be there and everything else was incredibly important. So I think it's, um, it's not a negative by any stretch. And I think in most, a lot of places it's a bit of a positive. But I, I think it's not as, you know, necessarily as big as, 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 you know, selling English tea or something like that would have been. And again, very humble about it, obviously being the British person. But I just want to <laughs> emphasize the fact that, you know, again, it's hard when it's your own culture. But there's a – and again, you know, Europe in general exports luxury. France, you know, they – it's 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 practically a commodity the creation and exportation of luxury and what luxury is they almost sometimes act as though they invented it that mentality of course is connected to the swiss watch industry england has always been as you said very important in it and at least in modern times a lot of the marketing communication has come uh, from england so to a degree knowing it or otherwise, uh, your part of the world has dictated to many other parts of the world what is culture, what is tasteful, what is a nice thing for a long time. And that and that maintains, doesn't it? No, it does. And I think we are in this country, um, I, I mean, I think the word's overused, but this, this term luxury, I think we are, as a nation, very good at it. You just look at some of the car industry, you know, the Bentleys, the Rolls, all these sort of things coming out of the Aston Martins coming out of this country. Um, At least look, mention Jag. You work with them. No, of course, and Jaguar as well. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm t- thinking of the, you know, the the Uber luxury, um, uh, you know, Jaguar sports cars. But you know, if you're looking at it, if you think of an Uber Uber luxury car, you're going to think of a Rolls, aren't you, or something like that. And it's, um, but that that term luxury, you know, is very much um, uh, embedded in in UK culture. But I think we. We lost it a little bit with with watches, uh, but it's certainly there. There's an incredible um, foundation there. You know, you've got people like Roger, Roger Smith making, you know, watches. Okay, small numbers, but in in beautiful quality up in Isle of Man. And there's some incredible artisanal watchmakers. And um, it's just about sort of getting the word out. But none of them did what you did. None of them put England back on the map as a place to really house a luxury watch brand. They're all making wonderful things, but like you said, niche, very boutique, very cottage, very much for people in the know. Bremont has gained a, a Hollywood level of popularity to a degree that has put, you know, in that sense, those other companies back, back on the map. Have they ever thanked you for that? No, probably quite the opposite, really, but but that's that's another discussion for another time. <laughs> but, but, but um, no, no, I think it's... Uh, it's it's really lovely, and it, but that's what that drive. You know, you talk to anyone at Bremont, and you say, "What what drives you as a person to work for Bremont?" And it's this, it is this genuine passion of trying to bring bring watchmaking back to British soil, and it you know it takes a huge amount of investment, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but it's a lovely goal, and everyone sort of shares it. And you know, very lucky to work with other partners. You know, whether it's Williams or as you said, Jaguar or Rolls Royce Aerospace or. And they all share it as well, and they're there to help. So it's a really, really exciting time. It really is. Why watches when you started the company? I mean, I, I don't remember you or your brother or your family having a particular background in watches. Obviously, there's the aviation connection. But 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 why watches? And there's some good answers, but just help explain to people what, what draws someone in the modern sense to, to become a watch uh, you know, manufacturer. Yeah, and that's a really, really good point, actually. And don't forget, we set up 
20 years ago. And I think things have changed a lot in the last sure. 20 years. You know, now it's possible to set up a sort of, um, uh, you know, a crowdfunded brand and sell 300 and uh, quite easily and get parts made around the world. And when we started 20 years ago, it, you know, you, you couldn't even dream of doing something like that. It, w- it just wasn't possible. Um, so we, our, our actual interest, Charles and I, we we're, have a love of all things engineering, really. That's our, our background. Our father was an aeronautical engineer from Cambridge. He did his PhD there as well. Um, uh, he, you know, had an incredible passion for, for restoring, for making things. You know, airplanes we still fly, boats we sell, you know, lift on, the um, cars we raced, all this sort of stuff. But one thing he was really passionate about were clocks, and he paid for his way through Cambridge uh, and his doctorate by restoring clocks. So on our workshop, there are always clocks lying around. Our grandfather, who's a pioneering heart surgeon, um, actually invented the ventilator as well. He um, he he um, was into clocks, and so the family sort of loved these things. Watches, he had a collection of old watches, and we used to talk about it. But one thing he was always talking about was do you realize you know there's a lot of history in this country with clocks and watches and if you look at a lot of the carriage clocks there are so many and grandfather clocks and etc there's a lot of amazing british um brands out there anyway so that was there and the other big thing in our lives was obviously flying and flying uh historic aircraft and we're all sponsored through university by the air force and uh, and then we did a lot of display flying. Our father would be every weekend. We're going to air displays and air shows um, and flying. And then I had this nasty accident with him practicing for an air display in, when was it, 1995, so a long time ago. And Giles and I, for our sins at that point, had um, gone into the city and we're in corporate finance. And I had this accident right in the sort of middle of that period. And, and it changed our life a little bit. And... Uh, it yeah. was that tipping point that just sort of said to us, actually, let's go off and do something slightly mad. And, and our propensity for risk had probably gone up. Our, um, our uh, you know, acceptance of the word no just disappeared. And we just thought life is incredibly short. Let's go off and do something crazy, which for us was setting up Bremont, really. Did it bring you two together? I've always wondered about that period after the accident and everything like that. Did it bring you and your brother together in a way that you hadn't been together before? Um, we're always very close. We're always very close. We had um, actually a business before Bremel, um, and I'd, I'd worked with him, but it was, it was, it's hilarious, actually. We, we had, um, I remember one night, so so we'd been, we're both doing something very similar, corporate finance in the city. And I remember my boss, and I'd just come back from, you know, I'd been I'd, in this accident, I smashed up myself quite badly, and I broke, you know, scores of bones you know probably 25 30 bones whatever it was and i and i was on the mend and i got back to work and i was just sitting at this going my gosh is this really me and i and i was working all night and my boss about 10 years above me came up to me and said nick you've done a great job and he sort of waddled over to me it's about i don't know 20 stone which is a quite a hefty weight um you know probably a couple hundred pounds sweating profusely sort of on his third wife and he and he said nick you really good job thanks for doing all that work last night and by the way you know if you keep on working like this you could be in my position in 10 years time and i just remember looking at this guy going my gosh is this what i really want and i immediately called up giles and i said giles i'm not sure i can carry on doing this and half an hour later he rang me back and said ah oh, nick um i've resigned 
and that was it. So we went off, and it was. Uh, I thought, what, like, what is so bad about corporate finance? You're not the first person to mention that no, it's sort of soul sucking. Like, what is it all? What is it all about? There's nothing wrong with it at all. It's incredibly exciting in parts. It's um, your. There's a couple things. One, it's it's a it's quite a high stress reward type of you know industry in a way because you're. Uh, you know, there, there are deadlines you have to meet, so you can't sort of push things out at all. Um, and there's obviously your, your training before that to get to that stage, whether it's accountancy or what have you. But, but, but the, the interesting with corporate finance, the problem with corporate finance from my perspective is you're always doing deals for people, doing the exciting things on the other side. So buying or selling companies for, for people who are making things or, or building businesses, and you're not actually doing that. You're just um sort of pushing paper around in 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 a certain respect but you know listen there's some i know some great mates in corporate finance and they're incredibly good at it i don't think i had the passion so i probably wouldn't have been particularly brilliant at it long term so um and i think this 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 accident you know our father not you know having died i think giles having to sort of pull the family together and a number of other things really did affect us and uh we just wanted to try we didn't ever want to get to whatever age it was and we look back and go i wish we had and we still feel like that which is why were, were there examples of of other people who may have done something similar you know quit some type of a corporate job to to make something artisanal that maybe inspired you and giles like i'm just curious like if there was like oh let's go be like those two guys or that brand or like you know what inspired you well, I think part of it was our father, really. I mean, obviously, there's some great stories of entrepreneurs out there doing some great things and throwing caution to the wind. And um, I mean, you look at, you know, Gravity Industries, you know, um, Richard Browning with his rocket pack, you know, he was in the city and he he literally said, actually, I want to try this. And he went off and designed a rocket pack in his back garden, which outperformed anything, you know, even NASA had come up with. Um, or any of the military, and he just did it. And I I think you can do these things. And our father was similar. You know, he was at Cambridge. He then went to work for for Pi Electronics, which I think was sort of part of Philips back then. And and then he just, he saw a a small business for sale in Cambridge and uh, doing this incredible architectural roofing. And he just, in his mid-20s, early 20s, he went and Ended up borrowing five thousand pounds from his father and 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 buying the company. I think it was a. I love those stories, and um, you don't know unless you try, do you? Really? Now you've done this now for over twenty something years, but I still get the sense that it feels fresh to you. What are some of the things you do to sort of keep it things exciting? Obviously, you keep changing things, you keep adding on to the brand, but I have to. It's actually it was sort of shocking to me. It was like, oh my gosh, Bremont has been around that long. <laughs> Even though, again, it still feels so fresh. What do you, what do you do to keep things interesting? Exactly. Listen, I think I think we wanted to. I think the big difference from us, from say some brands that have been around for uh, you know longer periods, is Giles and I very much wanted to see Bremont develop into something in our lifetime, not in our grandchildren's lifetime. Um, because, you know, I don't know if my kid's going to be into watches and, you know, one wants to be a marine biologist, the other wants to be an actress. And, you know, I can't, you can't force your children down any particular route. So it was very much, we want to see this, get to something quite exciting whilst we still have the energy and the interest um, to be in the industry. So we've probably pushed it a lot more than, uh, you know, uh, many other brands have in terms of, 
within a, a certain period of time. You know, there's probably a handful of brands in the last 20, 30 years who have really pushed in. I think we're one of them. You know, you, you know for, for the manufacturing side on British soil, where you're making cases, you're making movements, you're doing chronometer testing, you're setting jewels, you're, you're doing everything um, you know, under one roof was a big, big ambition for us. And, and I think it'd be easy to, to outsource a lot of that. It'd be easy to, to go for a, a more low-hanging fruit option. But we, we didn't want to do that. And I think that's, that's the difference. And that's where the passion lies. It's because every day we sort of wake up going, great, what can we do next? And, and we're working with some amazing engineers who are, you know, look at case, our case manufacturer, for example, you know, we manufacture cases in a very different way. You know, Peter Speak, you know, he, he came around and he said, I've only ever seen one other company manufacturing cases to, to your tolerances and to your level. And that, and that is a really special thing to say. And that's all happening on British soil now. And we're doing things in different ways because we're working with aerospace, we're working with arms engineers, we're working with some amazing people who have done different things, uh, but for similar industries, um, uh, and you look at the movement side, you know, you, and time and time again, you're told, you know, I just don't think you're going to be able to do that. But we, we have had some amazing help from Switzerland. We've had, um, but, and that's, that's the, but that's the passion that keeps us going. That's where I think we are slightly different. And if we can do it ourselves, we will. Well, one of the things that you're not saying that maybe you should say is that a, in, in the large part, you're building, you know, solutions to problems. And tool watches are the most successful watches, historically speaking. You're talking about where they're built. But I think it's really important to distinguish the fact that you're trying to make new things. And of course, for them to be really new, you have to control the process. You can't ask someone else to make it for you. That's why you have to make a number of saw because you have to do it. Whereas it's entirely viable from a business perspective to just design a nice watch have a headquarters wherever you want to be in London, uh, and and you know just outsource the production. You, you could ostensibly make just as much money. I guess the question is for you: uh, Why is it important to create new things, to create tools, to have control over that process? What is it you're trying to make? Are you just trying to have fun and make toys? Are there specific you know purposes that you want your watches to to be designed for? Help explain that that part of the drive because I personally think it's one of the most interesting things about Bremont. No, it's a really good question, Ariel, actually, because it's, um, there are a lot of, you know, we're not getting to any names, but there's a lot of big brands out there who ostensibly are outsourcing everything, um, even their movement design. If everything's being outsourced, you know, they're not assembling the watches and effectively you end up with a marketing team managing this brand. And, and I think this, this is the slight issue in the this industry right now is a little bit of knowledge. There's a lot of people on their keyboards um, looking and quite, you know, with, with, with good reason, looking at um, different brands and trying to dig deeper. And, but I think a little bit of knowledge is also quite a dangerous thing. Um, Giles and I, you know, we, it doesn't sound that long, but 20 years we've been dealing with different suppliers on a very granular level. I'm going to give you a statement. If you're only half a rocket scientist, your rocket definitely isn't going to make it anywhere. Well, no, this, this is the point. And people say, you know, let's face it, you can get a 7750 movement in a 500 quid watch. You can get in a 40 grand watch. And what is the difference in that movement? But people will see the word 7750. So, and that's just a, an example. But as I mentioned earlier, we wanted to do this long term. And, and 
you know, we you can design a take a watch case for example. You can design a watch case, and you come up with the drawings. You'll have all the dimensions, great, and you'll think we own our drawings to our watch case. How fantastic is that? You'll send that off to Switzerland to get machine and made into a case. The cases will come back and go. This is fantastic. Look at that. That's the the case we drew. Isn't that amazing? And uh, you'll start building watches with it. You'll then say, right, we've got to diversify a bit and use a different supplier as well, you know, just for, for risk and for quality and all that sort of stuff. You'll send the same drawing out to a different case manufacturer. It'll come back and it'll be slightly different because they've ma- made it in a different way. So what you realize quite quickly is the drawing, you think you own the drawings. You don't own the drawings until you own the machine drawings and you're pressing the button on the machine with the drawings that you've done. And so what we've realized, especially in the last 10 years, is you don't own anything unless you own everything from all the industrial design upwards and including all of the programming machine, you know, drawings. And, for the and let's explain really quick some context here that if you don't own those parts of the process, you are essentially hostage to one supplier and one supplier can dictate what you can do when you get product. It, it becomes very difficult as a business to, to be beholden to one company to get something so crucial made. I know completely. And you're dealing with, you know, there's um, the human hair is 60 to 100 microns. We're machining to three microns. And so you get something back, um, which you've sent out exactly the same drawings. You get them back and it doesn't fit or it looks slightly different. And 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 you realize when you're, you know, we do all our own servicing. We always have. It's a control thing. So you'll come and you'll, there's a whole floor dedicated to after sales and things. And, you know, you want that piece to be pulled out of stock and fit first time, whether it's on the movement or on the case. Or, but it's not going to be that. If you use different suppliers, you're not always going to have that, no matter how good that supplier is. And the watch case will be beautifully made. It'll just be slightly different. And it doesn't matter what brand you are, who you are, you'll have that problem. And it'll be the same for different industries. So quite quickly, we realized that actually, for us to have utter control of our supply chain, we need to try and control as much as we can. Now, we can't do everything. You know, we're not making jewels. We're not, you know, we're not making, you know, some of the movement parts. But we're, you know, if you're not making them, you have to have utter control and proper relationships with these people and and you have to really deal with the same supplier if you can otherwise has it ever been weird to you how some consumers are just so hyper focused on where stuff is made because all the arguments for making things in-house are are more or less in favor of the brand they get to control costs they get to have consistency they get to have production times that they can predict like what where the parts are made honestly doesn't really affect the consumer at all but why is it in this space consumers are so hyper focused on something that matters so little to them? Does it not? Does it not matter? I mean, it's it's different. I mean, I think if the quality's there, then fine. Um, I think there's it's when you start getting into luxury, um, I think there's something slightly more. Um, I don't know. Touchy feely comes into it. You you. The quality's got to be that. Listen, if you buy a watch for, say, $1,000 or $10,000, you expect that watch to be up there with with that price point in terms of quality. Um, and you want to pick up like brands, and they've got to feel Absolutely. the same. 
And, you know, we pride ourselves, you pick up a Bremont, it, it feels very, very different from a lot of watches. You can feel... You, you can feel a watch when you pick it up, and 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 I think that's very important, and that's part of the reason, you know, buying of the internet is 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 great. But it's you, I think you need to have felt a brand first. Um, but also, you know, if you're getting your your suit made in Savile Row, um, and it's been made in a, in a beautiful tailor's, and you can you're you're there, you know, you're 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 experiencing not only experiencing, but you're you're going out and say the quality of of the suit is. The same with an Italian suit or a, um, you know, a French suit. But you're you're walking out of Savile Row. You're feeling special. You're feeling special because you you've been involved with the process. You've seen where it's been made, and it makes you feel different. And I think that's no different with watches. If you've gone to a place and you've seen the time and effort, it's not, you know, thousands of people in a row just punching things out. But you're 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 seeing the time, effort, the passion that's gone into making a particular part. You feel different making that, wearing that watch. You really do, and you know it's been made with proper work practices. You know all of the testing's been done. You know that the watch is going to be looked after after you've bought it. Is these things aren't aren't cheap, are they? You know you're you're spending a few thousand dollars on a, on a watch that you want to learn a life own a, for a lifetime, and you want it to be looked after for a lifetime, and all these sort of things add together. So I don't think you can take any one part in in isolation. Um, but I do think luxury is more than just um, price point. It's more than just you know the um, where that part's built. I think it's more than just the quality. It's a combination of all these things together. Now, how well has your local market in the UK received this message? You know, I, I'm, I'm sure that in the UK probably isn't your your largest market because there's you know just the US just geographically is much bigger. But in terms of you know selling to locals. How 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 readily did 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 England sort of you know take to the brand? I know you obviously have a lot of local fans and things like that, but what's the difference between selling to people in England versus people out of England for Bremont? No, interesting enough, the UK is our biggest market, and oh. I think part, part of that, and then interestingly enough, our biggest store is the one at our manufacturing facility. You know, we've got a number of our own stores around the world, but our biggest one is the, the one, one in Henley. The one in Henley, you know, it's not wow. Madison Avenue, it's not Shanghai, it's not, you know, Mayfair, it's uh, or Australia. It, it is, it is the one in in Henley, and the reason for that, quite quite clearly, is you go there and you can see everything from end to end being built on that watch. You know, you can see that bar of metal coming in, and you go and chat to the engineer who's machining that piece, and then the guy polishing you the case, and then the the person assembling the movement or fitting the jewels or manufacturing the movement plates or bridges you can see all this and you come out and you 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 sort of understand what it's all about and isn't that a funny thing you go to the watch manufacturers almost every brand you know that you any major brand and you're just so romanced you're like i gotta have one of these but you have to like walk through the facility first well now what i think is special it's the same as you buy you know a beautifully made shotgun or something you go to purdy or boss or um any of these brands and you um you know wesley riches and you see these beautiful things being made it's it is craftsmanship and it's not just um a cardboard box turning up from whatever country unpacking and repacking you know it's a lot more than that and um and i think the brits are very proud of that you know there's i think as a company a country we have become slightly more service service orientated over the years certainly in the perception way but actually, I mean, the U.S. Are, as well. 
There, totally, but there are. If you go, you dig deep in America, you dig, you know, not so deep in the UK now because it's really quite, there are some amazing companies making some amazing things. And it uh, doesn't matter if you go to the Brompton Bike Factory and you talk to Will and you talk to see what they're making there or you, you know, go to, to Rolls-Royce you know, Aerospace and you see the way they're making these jet engines. You can't help but fall in love. Obviously, you're not going to buy a jet engine, but you'll buy a bike or a watch. And I think the way, you know, as a business, we built this new facility. It's sort of 35,000 square feet of watchmaking space. But it's all designed. It's sort of quite state-of-the-art. It's all very eco. It's living roof. It's, um, you know, the heat from machines is passed around and heats the building. And it's all designed, you know, we want to be sort of carbon neutral as soon as we can. Shipping stuff around the world the whole time is a thing of the past. You can't ever become, you know, more you know, environmentally sensitive if you're shipping stuff continually around the world. It's just impossible. So, so I think producing close to home, whether it's, you know, manufacturing or food, for example, is, is the way we need to go. And I think, um, uh, you know, if you look at several parts going backwards and forwards, you know, if you are buying from abroad, the cases might come in, you might finish them, then send them back, and then they come back again after coating. I mean, how many times do things travel around the world? <laughs> it's, you've got to be careful. You really do. But isn't it amazing how, once again, watches, even though we don't need them, are like the poster child for an important, you know, geo, you know, economic movement, which is, you know, local manufacturing, whether it be uh, electronics or mechanical things or food. Watches are like, Yet again, a good test case scenario for this. It's just funny how watches, as obsolete as they are sometimes, still seem to be so practical and relevant all the time. Oh, the it, best, it, it, though. Think, think right? about it. You're, you're wearing something that your father, your grandfather could have worn. And if you've got a, you know, an iWatch is an incredibly, you know, amazing device. It is, you know, let's face it, it does, <laughs> does everything. Um, but you're going to bin it in two years' time and replace it. Not only is that, eco mega unfriendly um but also you're not going to have any of the heritage of of a piece that has been around for years and and that's what i love about a mechanical watch this is why you know 20 percent of our in our business is military because these guys are buying watches and they're saying actually i want you know i've flown the f-35 or i've been in this special forces unit and i want my child to to be able to wear the watch that i wore in you know in theater and it's 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 lovely. I mean, there aren't many things like that. You know, classic cars are perhaps one of the things, or but they have to be properly mechanical. Um, you know, quartz watch. You know, let's face it, you're ripping out the inside and you're you're swapping it over and have them in a year's time, and the battery's probably leaked and um, all these things. It's probably not going to be uh, the parts available in twenty years' time. So, whereas a mechanical watch, hey, goes on forever if it's looked after. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. Right now, the Blog to Watch Store features a line of t shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. 
Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Yeah, no, it, 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 it totally is. Okay, so you've, you've just opened up a new facility or part of the facility in Henley. We've had this larger conversation about, you know, you doing more and more in-house, um, which gives you more control, which gives you the ability to grow and develop as a company. What, what are some of the latest things that you brought in-house of course, it's a, it's a it's a process. It's a series of steps. I've been there along the way with you through some of them. What can Bremont now do in house? Okay, just okay. So we started. I think it's about 2013, 14, making our cases. Um, um, certainly, most of our cases are all made in in Henley now. You can go and see that. You can see that bar of steel or titanium going in, and our cases coming out. And it is beautiful to watch so that's all happened for a long time now over the last couple of years what's really really exciting is well we've been working on a number of different movement calibers um so we own effectively three internally and there's one which uh we've put a huge amount of time and effort into and we uh with the eng 300 series and that movement's just come out in a watch we released late last year uh, called the longitude and that was a sort of limited edition watch just whilst we learned how to really start producing this movement in in numbers and then later this year you'll see you know this movement being used in other watches as well um to to a different t- degree but it's um it's 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 a really exciting development for us because suddenly you can come to Henley and you'll see bridges main plates uh, auto bridges, you know the whole, all, all of this, you know, dual setting, all happening, movement assembly, chronometer testing, all happening in in Henley. So we can't make everything, you know, it's impossible. I mean, it's you know we don't make the jewels. We're still not making, um, you know, some of the screws and things. Well, and screws, you know, it's it's a, that's a different process. There's a number of things we're not making, but you know, we have the ambition to certainly do more and more over time. Um, so so it's, it's, it's a really exciting sort of phase we're at. And the reason we did that was because, you know, what can we do? What do we need to do? And what do we want to do to really differentiate us as a brand in terms of you buy a Bremer? Actually, not only is the case being made, but my gosh, you're buying this British movement as well. And it, and it is a Superb! It's an incredible movement. It's just beautiful. You know, silicon parts in it. The um, the escapement. The you know, it's a it's a really really well designed movement. Because if you think about it, most movements out there were designed fifty years ago. Um, and oh, I can't wait to see it. No, it is it is absolutely stunning, and it's and it's incredible. You know, just you plop it together, and it's sort of within chronometer standards very very quickly. It's um, beautiful to service. And it's a workhorse movement. We've designed it to be something which can compete with the best of the best out there. And and I can't undersell this thing. It's just, you know, it's just unbelievable. You know, you've been designing watches ostensibly for, like you said, about 20 years now. How have your own personal tastes or interests shifted? Do you find yourself being into sport watches at one point more and into dress watches later or different colors and materials? Like, Talk a little bit about your own journey as a, as a watch product enthusiast. 
<laughs> That's interesting. I think when we started, we got into watches also, I told you earlier, from my father and things. But it, one of the passions was, you know, he collected vintage watches and we love these vintage watches. And there's, you know, whether it's the old Mark 10, 11 IWCs or some of the old relics, there's some lovely things out there. You know, the, the Navitimer he won in an RAF competition. or, uh, But what you realize quite quickly is a lot of these these vintage watches are relatively fragile. You know, they're, they're designed however many years ago and um, they've been serviced countless times. You know, the hands aren't quite as uh, friction-fitted as they used to be. And um, But there's always been this love of this sort of tool-like watches for us. And a watch, there's a couple of things. One, obviously, only mechanical. Um, we've only ever made chronometer watches um, in our main ranges. We... We wanted a watch, ostensibly, that you, any good watchmaker, without knowing our brand, could take the back off the watch and go, actually, that is a beautifully made watch, really beautifully made watch, in terms of the case, in terms of the movement finishing, everything. was was didn't matter what brand it was, but a, a good watchmaker would smile when he took the back off. And it doesn't matter if it's a closed back, open back. We don't sort of hide anything. The, every movement is finished beautifully. That was also important. But I think the main thing when you're designing a watch, Ariel, was to design a watch which you pick up in 20 years' time and it still looked nice, still looked relevant. It wasn't fashion. It wasn't, oh, my gosh, that's so 2022. I, we didn't want that. And we try not to follow big trends. Obviously, clearly, you know, yeah, I mean, the biggest watch we've ever done in our core range is like 40 five mil and that's a 2000 meter diving watch but we've never gone bigger than that and, and even that that's big um most of our ranges are you know 42 43 mil or 40 mil now and we haven't sort of done massive oversized watches and uh, you know we're not into massively into bling for for blokes watches um but it's it's and i think that sort of comes around our sort of two or three core principles and one of those is also making the stuff over here in the in the uk the second one is, uh, you know, our, we do a lot of the aviation military side. So there's always going to be a a kind of theme running through where you can certainly see a bit of DNA there. Um, as I was saying, a lot of our business is military. And the third one is that we're designing a watch which uh, you could wear in a boardroom or up Mount Everest. Hence, you know, NIMS wearing our watch on the 14 peaks and us sponsoring him for that thing and, um, some incredible people doing some amazing things now around the world. So the whole adventure side, the fact you can take a beautifully engineered chronometer, mechanical chronometer, to all these you know fairly harsh places, and it still come back ticking with glory is 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 a lovely thing. And so adventure is our sort of third pillar. And I think if the watch ties into all of these, and you and you can, you, it sort of uh, yeah ticks every box. Then then it's it's something we'll probably end up producing. So I'm, I want to talk a little bit about a watch that's important to me just because it, it really solidified my interest in the brand early on, and that was the Martin Baker watch. And there's been many of them, so that's, that's a whole host of watches. But the idea was that you, as Bramont, early on, I believe, worked with another British company, Martin Baker, that makes ejection seats. And the idea was a watch that was um, shockproof and durable enough to survive the, the G-forces involved with being ejected from a plane and the fall and potentially hitting the ground and, and whatever else. And um, you did it. You, you, know, you, you succeeded. It was a, a, a task and you were testing an instrument to, to satisfy in the first few 
I think, failed and you had to make a bunch. And then that became an enduring part of your legacy. You had a slogan, I think it was tested uh, beyond endurance, which I always thought, which is good. I'm not sure if you still use that. We do indeed. Yeah, it, it's it's really a great one. But in the modern sense, it's very rare to see a situation where you can put a mechanical watch through a new sort of series of tests uh, to make sure that it can survive that task. And you sort of found one of those things that no one had thought about, like, oh, ejection seat. No, we don't have a watch for that. Um, and you were lucky for that. But talk a little bit about the the Martin Baker experience and how that created, uh, I think, a sort of very permanent part of the brand DNA. No, of course. No, so that happened a long time ago, actually. And it was um, back in uh, around 2008. Um, so we sold our first watch 2007. So it was very, very soon after that. And being in aviation and uh you know, one of the brands we knew very well was Martin Baker. They make 75% of the Western world's ejection seats. So it doesn't matter if you're sitting in a F-22, an F-35, an F-18, a Typhoon. A, you know, you're going to be sitting on a, a Martin Baker seat. And they saved over 7,600 pilots' lives to date. So there's a, obviously a lot of happy families out there. Um, and they approached us. We, we knew Andrew, Andrew Martin. So it's still a family-owned business. It's an incredible business. Um, best of what they do by law. I went with you guys there one time, remember? Yeah, you did. And 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 it's um I mean you went around and, and it's isn't it a special place? And they're there there's no sort of frills. It's just they're making incredibly sophisticated things. You know the an F thirty five seat, it's gotta keep the 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 um pilot's head in place when you're ejecting at however many G you're you know if you're flying at six hundred miles an hour and you've ejected <clears throat> you've got to be careful your head doesn't fly back so it's got all supports there you might well have your supplementary oxygen and it'll only release you from the seat at certain heights you've got all your survival pack and i mean the end the list is endless and they're doing it there as you saw Ariel. <clears throat> and um and they came to us and they said nick um joe look we're we're one designer watch which um our ejectees can buy into and we'll subsidize and we said, that's great. Um, what, what, uh, you know, what were you thinking? They said, well, look, what's quite important for us? First of all, Giles, I went, yeah, of course. And then they said, actually, we'd be quite nice story-wise for this watch to be able to go through the same testing as the seats themselves. And again, quite naively, Giles and I were saying, actually, not a problem. No. And we're thinking any of these watches will just go sail through the testing. But then what you realize what the testing is, it's not just the G-forces. G-forces are one thing, and you can probably get similar G-forces in a in a golf swing. But this is something else. Uh, the shock testing, 40 years of vibration testing, salt fog testing, climatic testing. Because what, what you can test a watch to the blue in the face in the in the kind of the watch environment, but actually getting these incredible climatic tests and and uh you know, having their laboratory at our disposal was quite special. So they did all these things which you just wouldn't have imagined. Um, and our watches, you know, the original ones just did not survive because, you know, 40 years of vibration testing, screws come undone, rotors come off. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of stuff which is happening. Mostly it's the movement, really, you have to be worried about. The cases were tough anyway, but... And and it wasn't until our technical director at the time, um, who's since retired, Peter Roberts, who you'll know, uh, he said, look, why don't we end up suspending the the movement in this sort of 
suspension mount, um, this rubberized suspension mount, and put it in a Faraday cage so it's protected from all electrostatic magnetic forces. And anyway, we started working on this, and we and these watches ended up passing, and it became an incredibly robust watch, um, which, because of the protection we're putting around the movement, obviously movements have Inca block and the other have other shot protection built into them, but but this was from a case perspective, and, yeah, they started passing. And, and what was lovely, these watches, not only if you see anyone with a red barrel uh, MB, it means they've ejected and it's very tightly controlled, but also it led to, as we were talking about earlier, quite a lot of work in the military, which we're um, incredibly proud. I love hearing you talk about it because it shows that you went through the process. It shows what's involved in it. And it really sort of demonstrates that, you know, there's a lot underneath the hood, so to say, of a Bramot watch, which is, again, some of the things that I recognized very early on and has um, maintained my strong interest. And you also have an artistic side to you. You know, there isn't just tool watches, but there's these collaboration watches. Many of them are very, very, very artistic Um what is it about your lives that you and your brother are so good at, you know, understanding, appreciating mechanic, mechanics and engineering, but also, you know, culture and um, this idea of having these, again, they're, they're art watches. What else would you call them? Um, yeah, I, yeah. well, I, I suppose um, there's a couple of things. Every watch is like a, a little child to us. It's your own, you know, child. You, we become very possessive over design, so we still design all the watches ourselves. Um, you know, we were, have a team we work with, but it's very, you know, all the moobles, all the initial designs are done by us and, and all final designs are signed off and all the processes along the way are also monitored. It's, it's incredibly important for us to be involved at every level on that. These limited edition watches we do, which is probably sort of once a year, um, and not every year, but most years, um, started really about trying to produce a watch which was limited. So you can go a bit off-piste. You can have a bit of fun. They all had charitable angles, which was lovely. So they're all raising money for a particular cause. Um, And the idea was you produce a watch which had a story attached. um, And, you know, from the front, it looked like a handsome watch. But you take the back off and it told a slightly different story. And, uh, you know, examples of these would be, for example, um, the Codebreaker, uh, watch we did with um, Bletchley Park, the home of the sort of co-breakers during the Second World War. And we we raised money to help restore Alan Turin's heart. And, but we had parts of Enigma machine we built into the movement and wood from Alan Turin's heart built into the crown. And But from the front, it was a lovely flyback, retrograde, you know, movement. So, no, it wasn't retrograde. It was a flyback uh, chronograph, sorry. And it was just a really, really lovely watch. You know, the most recent one we did was um well last year before last was with um uh hawking foundation so stephen hawking was at school with our father and and then at university with him and um yeah we worked with them we produced this beautiful watch you know which and actually a ladies one for the first time as well um but again money went to the hawking foundation and uh uh it's just they're just really fun fun projects and they all become quite collectible because they're made in such low numbers as well so for you you're able to be so many things with this brand. You're able to be creative and you're able to be a little bit more carefree. Um, and you're also able to be competitive. And I, and I want to ask you, who's more competitive? Is it you or is it your brother? <laughs> I think we probably, 
equally competitive. I think, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, but we are, we're both fairly driven. I think, um, I think you get a bit more, um, retrospective than you is with age. I think your, your different things start driving you. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I think we, we both want, um, what, what, what means most, most to us, to both of us really is, is when you meet someone who didn't really know much about the brand and they come in and they've bought over watches and they've owned it for a while and you meet them the next time and they're, and they're just saying, look, I've owned all these different watches over the years and the one I can't take off my wrist is, is the Bremel. Um, and they'll talk you through why that's the case. And it's not because they've just seen it being made in the UK, and but it's so much more than that. And we get some lovely letters and we get some, you know, lovely emails from people who just really go to town and telling us why they love the watch. And I think that's what drives us both now more than anything else. And meeting some wonderful people in this industry, it's, um, there's some amazing people doing some amazing things, you know, and you're, you're not only meeting people if from the industry itself, but also, uh, your customers, you know, there, there's some really lovely people out there. Um, and I think that's the sort of the nicest things about this business. And, um, but that's what really drives us now, I think. And, and seeing the fact that, you know, we want in 20 years time to be able to look back as a brand and say, yeah, Bremont played a part, even a small part in reinvigorating watchmaking in this country. And I think, um, that's, that's what drives us now, I think. How, how do you split duties with him? I mean, you can't both do the exact same thing. Like, what do you do more of and what does Giles maybe do more of? Um, so we're both involved with a bit of everything and we're both sort of always in continual conversation. But I think he's probably more involved with marketing now and I'm more involved with product. I mean, that's the way it's sort of gone. Um, partly because operationally I live closer to the facility. Giles is about an hour away. So you know, he'll probably be in three days a week and I'll be in a bit more than that. So it's, um, but we both, you know, we're both fairly interchangeable actually, um, which is very lucky. Interesting. So, uh, so but I, I'm, I'd say I'm more... Would, um, would he say the same thing? Would he agree that you're both interchangeable? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, probably in a different way. He'd probably say I'm completely irreplaceable <laughs> from his perspective. But I, um, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're quite lucky in that. And we're not, you know, we're both quite similar backgrounds. We're both want the same thing. And I know if I'm not there and the sample dial comes through, I know he'll make the right decision, which is a huge relief. You know, if you've got someone, if you had a completely different taste, it'll be a, an absolute nightmare. And we pick up on the same bits of detail. Watchmaking is all about detail, isn't it? It really is. Um, and it's, uh, and I think we both have that level um, to the same extent. I mean, if you look at the products, I think what's important is you really get the feeling that you're making it for you. You obviously have a vision, you have an aesthetic, you have, you know, a, a particular type of personality that you want everything that to, to to stay within. And you don't really recognize that until you look at brands that don't have it, where there's a hodgepodge of different products and styles and price points. I've always felt that you guys have a lane that you know what it is because it comes from within you and you've, you've done a good job at sticking to it. And it doesn't really matter what that lane is. It just matters that you have one. And I think people feel you know, reassured by that. And, and I'm sure your customers notice that. And essentially, when they're buying the brand, they're sort of buying your family, right? 
Yeah, I, th- I don't know if you are, and you, and you feel responsible to these clients. You really do. I think, I think they're different with a, a sort of owner-operated business. Um, is we're not changing management CEOs. You know, we're not a luxury group where the next CEO has got to come in and something to prove. Um, we, 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 you know, and they'll change the design so they've had that impact. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and what we also, when we started Bremont, we very much, you know, Bremont, um, we didn't want to buy a brand. We didn't want to reinvigorate a brand from the past because we wanted Bremont to be able to take its own route. And nobody can say to us, that's not Bremont because Bremont is what we decided it to be. And I think that was really, really important um, because it is. You know, you, you, what, why would it not be Bremont? Because it's whatever we feel like it, we want it to be. Um, whereas if we'd reinvigorated Harrison, for example, as a brand, um, they'd have said, look, he only makes ships chronometers and he would have been spinning in his grave knowing what you've done with this or that. And that's the reason we didn't want to reinvigorate an old brand. And I think that's quite important. No, absolutely. I don't, I don't think it was a bad decision to start a, a new brand. Um, Last last question or last area of questions is the celebrity angle. And, yeah, you know, you're a brand that has been fortunate to have a lot of watches and movies, a lot of celebrity, uh, quote-unquote, friends of the brand, a lot of celebrities that have just, you know, picked up on your brand and, and decided that they want to wear a Bramont. Um, and that has helped in a lot of ways. And we know that in today's world, just given the way pop culture is, uh, celebrity endorsement in one way or another uh, is important. Um, was it sort of always part of the the plan to do a lot with celebrities that just sort of happen? Talk a little bit about that angle of the brand because it is it, it is you know important. <clears throat> yeah, no, it's one of these weird things, isn't it? Because there's books and books on the fact that celebrity sells, and, and of course it does. Otherwise. You wouldn't have the Breitlings and the Rolexes and everyone. They wouldn't be celebrities otherwise. They wouldn't exactly right. So, so it obviously plays a big part. I think for the the type of person we're appealing to, um, <clears throat> I think it's quite important that whatever we do is real. And when we we talk about, you know, we have had some really lovely people, special people wearing Bremel and becoming, as we call them, friends of the brand. And you know, we're not. We can't pay millions and millions to a celebrity, and especially not several celebrities, to to wear to wear our, our product. You know, it has to be because they they want to, um, and I think that's where it, it that's really quite important for us. Is whenever you do see a brand being worn by, worn by someone you know interesting, so to speak, then they've done it from their own fruition, which which I think is is is, is special. Um, but no, no, it's great. It's it's quite humbling at times, and it's um, and it, ma- it makes you smile. It's um, you know, it's uh, and then sometimes you see a watch being talked about in the most surreal of circumstances um, on TV. And you go, my gosh, where did that come from? And that you know, considering the brand sort of started with us in <clears throat> literally our garden shed, pretty much our workshop. It's a garden workshop. It's it's a lovely thing to see. I want to say that growing up in the 1980s and 90s watching action movies very frequently watches were in there there were either you know a cool item that was worn by a lead character or they were actually part of the story you know watches that could do various functions and things like that um 
And for me, growing up seeing that, that was that was quite, you know, uh, illustrative in in creating this perception in my mind that watches were cool. It did a lot. It did a lot for me. It definitely helped get me into. It wasn't until I was more of an adult that I started collecting watches, but it created an interest. I'm yeah. sure that similar for you. Um, I would not discount at all the value of having people wearing your watches in action movies. I mean, it it's it's not something that's sort of like when you're amongst, you know, an elite group of people and you want to like show off to politicians you're going to talk about. But at the end of the day, like that makes you way more of a big deal than, uh, you know, you know, coming up with the thinnest movement or the most precise chronometer. Like that's all cool. But, you know, uh, Venom wearing your watch is probably going to get you a little bit more long-term appeal. Yeah, no, well, I, I think I think so. It's a bit more it's a bit more real for for many people, and it's it, and it's a sort of uh, vote of confidence, isn't it? But um, but we're quite lucky because everything we've ever done has happened organically. You know, whether it's you know Tom Hardy, the Tom Cruises, the you know um, House of Falls, whatever. They're, they're they're all it's all because they're into similar stuff. You know, whether it's flying or um, you know beautifully engineered bits or. I mean, it's just a really lovely, um, natural progression, really, and and I think it's it is really lovely having them as the friend of the brand rather than a paid celebrity wearing the brand, and and I think that's quite important to us. And I mean, look, a lot of people don't recognize that that celebrities would be wearing watches if they weren't paid to do so. There are some that you know have strict business relationships, but the idea that a celebrity is has a, has a positive close relationship to watch brand and wants to represent them either just as a consumer or from a business relationship like it's a big deal both ways you know it's not like a, the, the celebrities care a lot more it's not like um a soft drink or some type of sponsor which is you know not that special to them like the celebrities sometimes care way more than the brands to be honest to have that relationship it's so true because it's <laughs> it it's their image isn't it if yeah. you're um if you're wearing something you don't feel comfortable, it's everything you've worked very hard to achieve over the years is suddenly sort of dismissed in a very short period of time. So it is interesting how it like, works. There's so that, we, you, know, you know, like the old joke, it's like there's the ad that they're only going to see in Japan. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I would never use or eat that product, but it's just an ad that they see in Japan. Whereas the watch is something that everyone sees everywhere. No, it's definitely not a lost in translation moment, is it? It's um, it really is uh, it is important to them, and I think, but, but to certain people, I think um, <clears throat> you get you know there are a number of actors as we all know who are very much into their watches, and it is incredibly important to them. Um, and then when you see some one of those wearing your watch, that's when it means a, a huge amount because um, you get a few that are obviously every other day they're wearing something different um probably because they're being paid to and that that's not quite so humbling but when you when you see someone who is very very uh well into their vintage watches they're very discerning in terms of which ones they pick up in the morning i think that that's a great great feeling really really special nick we are out of time um i want to direct everyone to the bremont.com website and if you are in uh, Henley on Thames, uh, uh, just outside of London, go to the uh, the most important store and the manufacturer there. There are Bremont uh, stores uh, in, in various important places, so go check them out. Nick, anything else you want to add or plug before I forget? No, no. All I would say is um, no. Thank you so much for your time, and it's 
as I said, you're one of the, the first we met in the um, watch industry all those years ago. And uh, congratulations on, on what you and your, your team have achieved at Bolter Watch because it's, um, no, it's done phenomenally well, hasn't it? And down to the content you've got in there. So thank you hugely for your time. And, 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 and also, anyone listening to, to this podcast, if they were generally interested in coming over and, um, or if they're over here already wanting to see the Bremont facility at the wing, um, I'd be delighted to give them a tour um, and come over and see see what's going on. But a huge thank you to, to you and your team, RL. Really appreciate it. Nick, thanks so much. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>